go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that we can, we don't have to look in ourselves and try to work up a righteousness that can somehow earn your acceptance. I thank you that you have sent Jesus to do what we could never do, to keep the law perfectly, (laughs) and that we now, if we trust in our Lord Jesus, we can be righteous in your sight. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives in each one of us who truly knows you and who has written your law on our hearts, the law of love. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would awaken by your Spirit in our hearts a desire to obey you, to listen to you, and to be like Jesus. Open our ears to hear from you this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we are going to be moving on in our study of the Torah into the law, the law found in Exodus chapter 20 through chapter 23. So Exodus 20 all the way up to Exodus 23 verse 33. Now in these chapters, we're going to learn about the law that God gives to his people when he makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or how many of you might be aware of this, but Christians are actually all over the place theologically when it comes to how we understand and interpret the laws of the Old Testament. Do they apply to us? And if they do, how? And if they don't, why not? Some Christians are really adamant that almost all the law applies directly to us. Obviously, things like worshiping in the temple, that's impossible. But things like food laws. Uh, Brian and I, out in Minneapolis, we actually talked with this kid who was into this internet group he found on YouTube. And um, we talked to him for, I don't know, Brian, three hours? Minimum three hours. Pleading with him to see what the word says. Because he was all into the food laws and... and, uh, and Basically, keep trying to keep every jot and tittle of the law as a new covenant believer. So that was what, that's one extreme. But then there's another extreme that, that says um, none of it applies to us. And, and they almost treat it as like a bad thing. It only shows you your sin. You, you know, you, we don't, we're not supposed to follow that at all. We, we stay away from the law. And you quote a law from the Old Testament to make a point, And they just dismiss it and say, oh, that's just Old Testament. That's Old Testament stuff. That, that has nothing to do with us. We're, we're New Testament. We're Christians. So that's the other extreme. And then there's all kinds of, you know, positions in between for how we deal with the law. And, and my position, Brian's position, the position that we teach you as a church is one of those in-between positions. And you're like, so what is it? Well, stay tuned. We'll be talking about it for this week and, and in the weeks to come as well. So this morning, I, I just want to start off simply by saying we believe that the laws of Moses we're about to read this morning, they do have application for us 
as Christians who worship Jesus. But they don't apply to us in the same way that they would have applied to an Israelite at the foot of Mount Sinai. The reason is that we are under a new covenant. In other words, we are not under the old covenant. Something new implies that there was something old. So we're, we're under the new covenant, not the old covenant at Sinai. That covenant came to an end with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Things have changed. There is a new covenant with a new king and a new law code that we follow. And finally, this new law is in a new place. Our hearts. It's not on stone tablets anymore. We don't have... Copies of the Ten Commandment laws. On, we don't have like two stones hanging on our wall saying we are the old covenant people. No, we are the new covenant people. The law is written on our hearts. Yet, the laws of the old covenant that we'll look at today, they are still in the Bible. They're still God's word. They are still true. And as I'll point out at the end of the message today, the Apostle Paul says that they are immensely valuable. They have immense value for us, for all things pertaining to godliness. So, that means that we should read the law. We should know it. We should study it diligently. But we can only study it in light of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and the new covenant that he has established so we need to take, and, and we'll, we'll kind of highlight how to do this. This is just setting the, the roadmap ahead. But we need to take every single law as Christians and look at it through the lens of Christ's coming and see how who he is and what he has done has changed or even intensified at times how the law is supposed to be obeyed. So we read the law through Jesus' glasses. You can't read a single law through, without looking at it through who Christ is and what he's done. Jesus totally reorients the whole thing around himself. It's amazing. And so, this morning, what, what I'd like to do next is I'd like to walk through the law, through Exodus 20 to 23, in four steps. First, I just want to talk briefly about the whole idea uh, that God is making a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. So, and I want to explain briefly what a covenant is and what it means here. Second, I want to talk about the ten words of life, the ten commandments that we find in chapter 20. Third, I want to talk about the judgments of God's law found in uh, verses 22 of chapter 20 all the way up to 23, verse 19. And fourth and finally, we're going to conclude by talking about how the law of Moses applies to you and I now that Jesus has come. So first, the God who makes covenant. In 20, verse 1, the God, the triune God of the Bible, he is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Now, at the very heart of this concept of covenant is an idea of, of a relationship. 
You can't talk about a covenant without talking about this idea of a relationship with someone. A relationship that's established on the basis of steadfast love and faithfulness to uphold any promises made and any oaths that are taken in the context of this covenant relationship. So, one really common example of a covenant that we have around us today even in the Western world, although it's grossly misunderstood at times, is uh, marriage. Okay? Marriage is an example of a covenant. In marriage, two people who are already in relationship with each other in some way, they, they know each other, they, these people formalize their relationship with a covenant. A covenant that contains promises of lifelong love and faithfulness. Now, next week, I'm actually going to preach. We're changing our preaching schedule a little bit. And I'm going to, I, I felt like the covenants are so important to the Bible's storyline. The, the story of the Bible, we've said so many times, the Bible tells one story of God's plan to save the world through Jesus. And covenants are like the backbone of that storyline. Jesus fulfills them all. Covenants are what moves the story along till we get to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, as one uh, popular book on the subject has been, is called, is Jesus is Christ of the covenants. Uh, Jesus is the, the king of all the covenants, right? So we're, we're going to talk about covenants next week and how they all climax in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. But for now, um, just know that all of God's relationships with humans in the Bible, they're covenantal relationships. Whether it's a covenant with Adam and Noah, or with Abraham, or Israel, or King David, or us through the new covenant, humans have relationship with God through covenants. You have to have a, be in a covenant with God to be in relationship with him. And in the Bible, God always keeps his covenants. Us... Not so much. We'll talk about that more next week. But one of these covenants is the covenant that God made with a man named Abraham. In that covenant, uh, found in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, God made some pretty big promises to his covenant partner, Abraham. And one of the promises that God made to Abraham is that he was going to raise up a male descendant called a seed for Abraham's line. And this seed, this male child, would one day bring God's blessing back to all the nations of the world, the blessing that Adam lost when he sinned against God back in Genesis. And God said in Genesis 17, verse 2, that his promise would come true if and only if Abraham believed God. So in Genesis 15, verse 6, we read that Abraham actually did believe God. And God declared him righteous by faith. The story of Abraham shows that the way anyone can enjoy a covenant relationship with God in which the promises come true is by faith, by total trust in God. But in the story of Abraham that follows, you may remember if you were with us through our times in Genesis that uh, it's not always entirely clear whether Abraham has faith in God or not. There's a lot of ups and downs. Genesis 15, 6 says he has faith in God. And you know that the promises of the covenant depend, uh, they're only going to come true if he trusts God. Genesis 17, 2 makes that very clear. So, 
does Abraham really trust God? What's going on? Well, by Genesis chapter 22, we find out through this crazy trust exercise that God gives him on Mount Moriah, yes, Abraham does trust God. His faith is really real. Real enough for him to obey God at a radical level. And if you're wondering, what's Genesis 22? Read it when you go home. It's a great story. Ask me questions later. So Abraham truly believes God. And so, the promises to Abraham were confirmed. God says that in Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. Abraham, because you listened to my voice, therefore... These promises will happen because your faith was an obedient and real faith. His obedience showed his faith was really real. But there was also another condition in the Abrahamic covenant. The promises, yes, they're going to come through Abraham's line eventually. Abraham's faith confirms that. But it's not going to be until Abraham has a child or children who are faithful to the Lord. Genesis eighteen nineteen. There God says, I have chosen him, that's Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, these covenant promises, they're going to come through Abraham's line. He trusted God, that's confirmed. They're going to happen. But they're only going to come when Abraham's descendants are faithful to the Lord today. And that would be Israel. Israel's the family of Abraham, the really messed up family of Abraham. And we find that throughout the whole story, right? And if Abra- But if Israel truly did what was right and just and obeyed the Lord, then the promises would come true. We know that didn't happen. But we do know, skipping ahead in the story, that God did send the perfect son of Abraham who succeeded where Israel failed. He sent Jesus Christ, who fulfilled Genesis 18, 19 completely. He threw open the floodgates of God's promises to Abraham. He threw them open so wide that Paul can now say, all God's promises to Abraham are, and to anybody, all of them to his people are yes in Christ. He says that in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. So that kind of sets the stage for Sinai. God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, if your children obey me, then, and they do righteousness and justice, then the promises will come true. The promises of land, the promises of being a blessing to all the nations. All these promises will come true if they obey. And now it's like, well, how are they supposed to obey? Glad you asked, Israel. God's about to tell you. You're at Sinai. Buckle up. Here comes the law. If they are going to be the righteous children of Abraham, that the Abrahamic covenant requires, then they must obey the covenant made with them at Sinai. So here we see a second covenant coming in. A covenant with Abraham's children, specifying how they can make the Abrahamic covenant come to fruition. Exodus 20 starts off with the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments. Then they're followed by God's judgments. 
literally judgments. Some you might your translation might have ordinances, rules. These judgments kind of they seem like they're unpacking the ten words in dozens of practical ways. In other words, um, the covenant of the ten words would be the basis for Israel's relationship with God. It was written on stone tablets most likely symbolizing that both Israel and God would have a copy, like in a marriage covenant, I get a copy of the covenant in a ring, and so does my wife, right? We each have a copy. And what do we look at? What do we remember when we look at our ring? The stipulations of the covenant, right? I have promised that I will be faithful to her till death do me part. On and on and on. Well, Israel and God both get a copy of the law. That was standard for covenants back then. God's copy, Israel's copy. And where do they go? They go in the temple, right where Israel would meet God. And so you have the covenant tablets, the Ten Commandments, and then all the laws that follow in chapter 21 and 22 and 23. There are lots of like case laws for Israel where these principles of the covenant would be applied. But for now, we're going to start off with the ten words. And so that's the second. The first big point was God makes covenants. The second big point today is that this, this covenant at, at Sinai, it's, it has ten words that it starts off with. Ten words of life. Some of you may remember how a few weeks ago I, I mentioned that God created the world in Genesis 1 with ten speech acts. Ten, ten repeated occurrences of and God said. And God said, and God said. And I pointed out that this is the reason why there is actually ten plagues on Egypt. Just like God utters ten words to create the world, so he uses ten words to decreate Egypt. Plunging Egypt back into darkness, like Genesis 1. We've heard that before. Decreation chaos takes over Egypt. And now Israel, they've gone through these waters of The Red Sea, which, remember, how does Genesis 1 start? The earth is covered with water, and then the dry land appears on the third day. Israel's going through the waters, most likely on the third day after leaving Egypt, on dry land. It's like a new creation is happening. And then they go to Mount Sinai, and they get ten words of life. New creation life. You want to live? then these words are your life. And again and again and again throughout, especially Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is like, these words that I'm speaking to you today are your life. These are ten words by which Israel is to live. They're to be a kind of new creation if they obey the words of life. Just like Exodus 19 verse 6 made clear, we looked at it last week, they'd be a holy nation in the world if only they'd obey the words from God. And these words are good. Paul says this in Romans chapter 7 verse 2. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So God's rules for Israel, they're good rules. He's a good father. His rules are rules for life. Bad fathers make bad rules. Good fathers make good rules for life. So what I want to do next is work through each of these ten words. And we're going to work kind of quickly through them, unpacking them just a little bit. So here's the first word of life. God commands Israel to worship him and him alone in Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3. Literally in Hebrew, God says, You shall have no other gods before my face. That expression is important. 
ancient peoples generally viewed the realm of the gods as this great like pantheon uh, or assembly of divine figures. You might even see like a painting of like the Greek pantheon with all these like semi-naked gods floating around. It's kind of weird. Um, there might be a big god at the top like Zeus for Greeks, but this big god had all sorts of other gods around him in his pantheon, like children and brother gods and sister gods and uncle gods and humans that became gods. And it's just crazy stuff, right? And here Yahweh says, clear out the pantheon, guys. There's no other gods before my face. The buck stops here. I'm the only God. As Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 39 says, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that Yahweh is God. In heaven and above and earth below, there is no other gods besides me. So, clean it out. No pantheon. When you think of the pantheon of this, this great assembly of gods, think of God. Think of Yahweh. There's no other before his face. And you better not bring one before his face even in your hearts. So God, second, forbids the creation of images that would be used to worship him. Now, unfortunately, this, cre- this commandment has been misunderstood, I think, over the years by, by many Christians, and actually Muslims who respect the law. Uh, they actually forbid making images of anything in creation for any reason. And that's really, in, in my opinion, an incorrect way to read the passage. Because God tells Israel in Exodus, to make images of bulls out of bronze to hold up the bronze sea outside the temple. So if they're not to make any images of anything in creation, why would God say make a bronze image of a bull outside my my tabernacle or my temple to hold hold up the bronze sea? Or how about all the pomegranates on the the tabernacle? They're supposed to be stitched all over the, the walls and the tops of the pillars. Or how about images of cherubim? that are stitched on the veil, symbolizing the cherubim back in the Garden of Eden who would keep Israel or keep Adam and Eve out of God's holy place. Okay? All these images, if, if God's forbidding any images, then why does he contradict himself? So what, what does this actually mean? I think there's something deeper going on here. An image in this context means an idol, I believe. And in the ancient world... These gods that the people worship, they're all up in heaven and they didn't visit the earth too much. So the way that you worship them, and when they did visit the earth, it wasn't a good thing, right? So the way you would worship these gods is you'd make little idols of them. Um, Actually, it was a really good business if you could make them and sell them, but it still is today in some countries. So you would make these little images that you could be nice to. And you could touch them, oh, I love you, and you could feed them, and you could set them on the most important place in your house, and you could make sure you dusted them every day. And if you were nice to the image, it was kind of like you were being nice to the gods. If you smash the image, well, then get ready to be smashed. Okay, that, that's the idea that these images were used for. They knew that the god wasn't actually this image. Even though sometimes the Bible mocks image worship, like, you're worshiping that as a god. It, it's just, it's being silly. You know, it's, it's mine because it's, it is tragic. But these people, they believe that these images represented the, the power of the divine. Yahweh was not to be worshiped using images. God is the creator of everyone and everything. We're not to imagine that he is, for example, a calf. 
like we'll see in Exodus 32. That's blasphemy against the one who literally flung the universe into existence with his words. But second, God already has an image. It's us. And we were made to reflect his character and to represent his rule over all creation. To worship an image of God that we make is to basically turn our role of imaging him on its head. Instead of reflecting the worth of our creator as his images, we bow down and reflect the worth of other created things, things we've made with our own hands, and as if those things were God's image. So when we make images, we're really trying to act like God, who made the only image of himself that should ever be made. So that's why making images is so serious. Third, God forbids the misuse of his name. Many translations um, say it this way. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. That's, that's a decent translation. Literally, the text says, You shall not bear God's name for nothingness or worthlessly. Vainly is a good crack at kind of like what that means. The idea here is that Israel bears God's name like a mantle, like a team jersey. Israel is team Yahweh. The same can be said for you and I as Christians. We are those who bear the name of Jesus. Don't bear it lightly. Don't live in a way that treats his name as worthless. Don't drag his name through the mud with our words, with our actions. Don't call on his name to approve the things that he hates and act like you hate the things that he loves. Walk worthy of your calling. That's what the third commandment is all about. Don't bear the name of Yahweh worthlessly. Fourth, God's people are to be Sabbath keepers. The Sabbath was and still is for Jewish people on Saturday. It was the day that God rested at the completion of his work of creation back in Genesis 1. Keeping Sabbath symbolized being in a relationship of trust in the Lord when Israel would rest on his day of rest. It would join God in his rest. It was a holy day, devoted totally to the Lord. Now, Christians have all sorts of opinions as to the Sabbath today. Okay? My dad said, right, no hunting on the Sabbath day. And I'd be like, on Sunday, and I'd be like, that's restful for me. You know, so, so it gets kind of you know, complicated. What, what is this? Does the Sabbath apply to us and how? And I'll give you a few thoughts at the end of the sermon. I'll leave you hanging here. Fifth, God commands children to honor their parents. That command sets up the most basic structure of human authority on the planet. Authority is not evil. It's not a bad thing. It is prone to horrible abuse. But in and of itself, authority and honor, they're good things. And they're to be celebrated as gifts from God, not abused. And now I'll just lift the last five commands quickly. God forbids murder. It's evil to destroy the image of God. That doesn't mean that it's evil to take human life, period. If that were the case, then God would contradict himself constantly in the Bible. Because he takes life. And he also commands humans to take life of, take the life of those who take life in Genesis chapter 9. What's the punishment for destroying the image of God? You are destroyed. That's how serious it is. Okay, so... so This murder here, we have to be careful. It does not mean taking life, no qualifications. Seventh, God forbids adultery. It's evil to break your covenant. 
with your spouse. It actually destroys the marriage when you introduce foreign flesh into a one flesh union. Adultery is covenant breaking. We have a covenant keeping God. And so he, for, he forbids it. And God forbids stealing. It's wrong to take what does not belong to you. And God forbids bearing false testimony, misrepre- misrepresenting the truth about someone or something. And finally, coveting is forbidden. Desiring anything that doesn't belong to you but belongs to your neighbor. And now we come to the third point this morning. Third, so we've seen the ten words of life. Now we'll look at the judgments of God's wisdom in chapter 20, verse 22, all the way to 23, verse 19. Now, unfortunately, because of time, there is absolutely no way that we could work our way through these judgments verse by verse. But what I do want to do is is just start by saying that in all of these laws, um, they're basically... And I've already said this, but they're, they're basically applications of the Ten Commandments. Um, you can't always draw like, oh, this one falls under murder, this one falls under. But basically, it's trying to take these principles of love for God and neighbor that we see in the Ten Commandments and apply it to life in Israel in her ancient cultural setting. Some of these laws are very easy to understand, and some are real head scratchers. Often because mostly because we're looking at them with Western eyes under a totally different structure of society and government and economics. And we're reading this and we're like, what? So what I'd like to do is just tackle a few of them together. Okay, so if if, uh, this analogy came up in one of our our classes, uh, if you you treated uh, these these laws as... um, as like baseballs, and you had a Christian theologian with a bat, and you're like, and the bat was called, interpret this through Jesus, <laughs> and you were pitching these laws at him as fast as you could. M- most of them are just ping, ping, ping answers, right? Easy. But some of them are real curveballs, and some of them are just, man, people are taking... They keep hitting them foul. You know, it's like, what, what's going on? That's just the image that some of these laws are, are trickier. So I didn't pick the trickiest ones because they would take a long time. But let's look at verses 12 to 14 of chapter 22. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. So here we see the qualification put on the command, do not murder, that we talked about earlier. Someone kills their neighbor by accident. This still happens tragically in our day. And the families get furious. It's your fault. But he didn't mean to. Sometimes revenge killings would happen. So God actually set up, it doesn't say it here, but he set up three cities of refuge in Israel that people could run to to be safe from a revenge killing. That type of murder is an accident. And we still make this distinction in our law codes today. But the type of murder that, murder that does deserve the death penalty here is the deliberate plan to kill a human made in God's image. 
Thou shalt not murder, found in the ten words. It's qualified by the case law here in chapter 21. Now let's look at 21 verse 26. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. Now, you might be thinking, what? Slaves? Is Slaves are in the Bible? Is God okay with slaves? Well, that's one of the harder topics to wrestle through. But the reality is, slavery was universal in the biblical world. It was the way that the economy worked. It was quite different than the slavery that we are familiar with here in America. It wasn't always race-based. It could be, like for example, the Egyptians enslaved the whole nation of Israel. That's kind of race-based. And they were brutal. That's race, that's, you know, clearly pictured as evil in the law. But, even though Egyptians enslaved Israelites, Abraham's wife, Sarah, had an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. So, slavery back then was much more of an economic thing. That's why a lot of English translations, they'll translate it, the, the word slave as, as servant, because that's really like, more like what it was. The master was to provide food, to provide clothing and shelter for this, his, his slave, his servant. And actually, if you had a good master, it could be a really good gig. Really you know, comfortable living. I mean, think of Abraham's servant Eleazar. I mean, he's like in charge of his whole house. And so, um, if, especially if you were a slave for a God-fearing Israelite, it, was a, it could be a great thing. And as chapter 21, verse 2 even says, you'd get your freedom after seven years. So basically, the law of Moses comes in to this setting in which um, people uh, were, were owning slaves. And bas- like I said, basically, this, this economic system of, of indentured servanthood. <laughs> and, and these people are serving, and God regulates it. Masters are to treat their slaves as if they're made in God's image, not beat them like the Egyptians beat the Israelites years before. And so we see, if you so much as knock out a slave's tooth, that slave, whether even if it's a woman slave, women were at the lower in the totem pole in society back then, this would have been unthinkable. Like, what? I knocked out my slave's tooth and now he's got to go free? what the law says to compensate for the tooth it protects you better be really careful if you raise your hand against the slave in Israel they're made in God's image let's do one more law Exodus 22 verses 3 to 4 anyone who steals must certainly make restitution but if they have nothing they must be sold to pay for their theft if the stolen animal is found alive in their possession whether ox or donkey or sheep then they must pay back double This is where double restitution comes from. So here we see some pretty firm laws about stealing. If you steal, you must pay back double what you stole. This regulates the offended party from demanding an exorbitant or even an inconceivably payable amount of money back, like in modern lawsuits. You hurt me, so I'm going to sue you for $20 billion, right? Like... That's so arbitrary. So God, God regulates it. 
You stole my sheep. I want all your sheep. What's to say that the bigger person can't take all the sheep from the thief? Well, God regulates it. Double restitution. So, if you're thinking of stealing your neighbor's sheep, you better think, do I really want to steal, do I really want to lose my, you know, one of my sheep if I get found out? So, instead of, and then what if you don't have the ability to make double restitution? Well, instead of locking the criminal up for an arbitrary amount of years at great cost to the community, the man himself is the price for his crime, and he's got to work to pay off the debt. So, if we're thinking, man, really? Sell him into a form of, of slavery? What do we call prison? Isn't incarceration a form of like slavery? Do they want to be there? We've taken away their freedom. I'd much prefer biblical slavery to incarceration, honestly. At least I'd still be able to be a contributing member of society, live with my family, raise my kids, go to church. Like... We could go on and on through all these laws. All right. Now, some are easy to understand and some are really hard. But there's a lot of wisdom in them. And there are good explanations for the hard ones. And we don't want to just write the Bible off because something sounds strange to us or foreign. We need to dig. We've got to dig in the right places. But there are answers a good study Bible is really a must when reading through the laws. And maybe some of the answers that we find aren't going to satisfy us completely. Some of the laws might still leave a bad taste in our mouth. And that's at that point that we have to trust the Lord that even if we don't see the answer, if it doesn't click with us, there is an answer somewhere because we can clearly see that overall, most of them can be seen clearly to be, you know, be um, very wise. And so for some, when the wisdom seems pretty foreign, I'll trust the Lord on that one. And now finally we come to point four. Uh, what are we to make of the law as a new covenant believers now that Jesus has come? Here's the fourth point, which is also the conclusion today. We'll look at the law of Moses and the law of Christ. As I've already said, this is not a simple topic and so I'd like to start our reflections on it by pointing out that this good law that Israel is receiving, it brings death to Israel, not life like it promised. The Apostle Paul actually summarized this very succinctly in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, when he writes about his own ministry. He says, He, speaking of God, has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, the letter would be the, the, the covenant that was written on stone, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills. We're going to see this again and again as we move through this story, and as we, especially as we move through the book of Numbers, right after Mount Sinai. After the law is given, death comes again and again as judgment upon the covenant breakers. The law covenant of Moses ends up bringing a flood of covenant curses down upon God's people, Israel. And the reason was not because the law was bad, but because Israel's hearts were hardened by sin. The point of the law was to show how bad their hearts really were. The law succeeds in showing how sinful 
humanity has become. It showed how desperately they needed God's Spirit to change their hearts. If they could have kept the law, it would have been a source of righteousness before God. But none of them could. Ultimately, the law showed the deep problems in every human heart. It showed our need for the new covenant to come, in which the human heart's problems would be fixed from the inside out. The law shows that humanity doesn't just need more rules or more education to be able to love God and love neighbor. We need new hearts. And the rest of the Bible story that follows Sinai, it's the account of God's plan to make those new hearts a reality. Near the end of the Torah, Moses in Deuteronomy is wrestling with the fact that Israel doesn't have hearts that are going to keep God's law. Deuteronomy 29, verses 1 to 4. He's basically like, you don't have those hearts yet. And then in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says that there is a day, though, coming when God's going to circumcise the people's hearts so that they will love the Lord their God with all their hearts and all their souls. The later prophets meditating on this passage in Deuteronomy. There's so much more we could say about that, by the way. But we're going to get there. That's the good news in our study. But Ezekiel, the prophet, in chapters 36 and 37 of Ezekiel, he says that it's the Holy Spirit that's going to do this work. And it's going to be like he takes the hearts of the people that are stone and he replaces them with living hearts. He's reading Deuteronomy 30 when he's writing. And then Jeremiah, the prophet, writes about it too. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, he says this in, in those verses, The days are coming future, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. Which one was that? When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Oh, that one, the one we're talking about. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. It's like a marriage covenant pictured like that in Ezekiel 16, that God is entering into like a marriage relationship with his people, and they are unfaithful time and time again. Verse 33 of Jeremiah 31 says this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Deuteronomy verse uh, 6, Moses says, you may have heard this before, Hear, O Israel! Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. They didn't get there under the old covenant. How would they get there? Jeremiah says, and Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, the Lord's got to circumcise their hearts. Remove that flesh, that that sin that's in the way by the Spirit. And write the law 
on their hearts. There will be a new covenant. It will not be like the broken one. That's the one we're reading about today. It's going to be a new covenant. And the law will be in a new location. God's people's hearts. And the result is that all the people who are part of the covenant, according to Jeremiah, they're all going to know the Lord. And they will all experience forgiveness from their sins. The old covenant law showed us our desperate need for a new covenant that will get the law where the stone tablets could never go. Our hearts. And that's the new covenant that Jesus established when he came. His words are not on stone. They are spirit and they are life. They go inside us. They change us in a way that the law never could. They make us actually want to love God. The law can stir us, actually. When you read it, it can inspire us. It can even invoke strong emotions in us. But it cannot transform. It cannot transform. Only Jesus can transform from the inside out. And now, we aren't under the old covenant as Christians anymore. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 to 21, he's not under the law, but he's under the law of Christ. That doesn't mean he's lawless. He's got a new law, a new covenant law that he's under, Christ's law. What is that? Well, in the words of Jesus, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also are to love one another. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Galatian church. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Jesus says this when he says, talking about what is the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What Jesus gives us is new. What, what, what's new about what Jesus gives us? Well, it's the how behind the statement to love your neighbor. How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? As Jesus loved you. And how did Jesus love you? He died for you. On the cross, bearing the curse of all Israel's law-breaking on himself and all your law-breaking and my law-breaking. Jesus bore it. And so now, when we view the law, we're to see it for what it is. It offers us wisdom and insight into God's character and God's vision for human flourishing and his plan to save the world through Jesus. In other words, we can't read the law and say, well, that doesn't sound really wise to me. This one's for me. This one's not for me. This one's for me. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. No, it's all for us, but it's not for us in the same way that it was for Israel. So again, I'll say that again. The law is all good for us to read, but it's not for us in the same way that it was for Israel. The law was an expression of God's wisdom that was time-bound. And it ultimately came to an end when Jesus came as the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are now found. So you look at the law and you see the wisdom of God. You look at Jesus and you see the fulfillment of all that. Jesus pictures what the law was trying to create, a people totally devoted to the Lord. And now, Jesus calls us to follow him. Yet the law is useful. 
for training, as Paul says, for correction, for teaching, rebuke, to help us know how to do good works. It gives us hundreds of examples of what love for God and love for neighbor looked like in a nation thousands of years ago, a nation in a special covenant relationship with God. But every single law, like I said at the beginning, needs to be held up to Christ now that he has come and addressed and understood in the light of who he is and what he's done. Here's how we do this. When we read about all the laws for how to make sacrifices for sin in the Bible, we know that we don't need to make sacrifices for sin anymore. Jesus is our sacrifice, and he calls us to put our faith in his sacrifice. The sacrifices we do make are sacrifices from the heart, living sacrifices We offer our lives to the Lord, not just our stuff, but our whole hearts in service to the one who gave his life for us. And when we read about the Passover and all the regulations for keeping it, we know that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. We don't need to celebrate Passover anymore. We are the people of the bread and the cup, his body broken for us. And we don't need to go to a temple to worship God. Jesus is where we meet. Meet God, and because His Spirit is in us, we are the temple of God. Our hope isn't in some future temple to be built on the dome of the rock in Jerusalem. No, it's Jesus and the new creation He's bringing where God's presence is. And we don't need the clean and unclean food laws anymore. Jesus has made us clean from the inside, and He has pronounced all foods clean. So we read the food laws and they should lead us to worship Jesus and desire to have clean hearts that he promises to give us through faith. And we don't need to be circumcised to show that we're part of the covenant of Abraham. If we trust Jesus, his spirit has circumcised our hearts, cutting away the hardness and opening our eyes to his love. And we don't need to keep the Sabbath like the Jews did. Here's the answer that I promised earlier. We're not under that covenant. The principle of Sabbath, rest, it finds its ultimate expression in the new creation, which we taste now in Christ, as by, but which we are longing for as well. One day there is a rest coming. As the writer of Hebrews says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's ahead of us. We rest in Jesus now. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Jesus, we taste the rest of the new creation that began when the stone rolled away. Not on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week. Sunday. We are no longer people of the Sabbath. We are people of the new creation, which starts on a Sunday and will end one day in the rest At the end of the week. How long is that week? I have no idea, but I hope it's soon. We are a people who rest. So every day is a Sabbath day for us. Yes, the principles of rest are good. You should get rest. God didn't make you to burn the candle at both ends endlessly. But man, every time you lay your head to rest, think new creation. It's coming There remains a Sabbath rest. So make every effort to enter that rest. Don't let sin entangle. And 
keep you out. Trust in Jesus who qualifies us to share in the inheritance with the saints in light. The resurrection was kickoff day for a new creation. So right now, we taste the new creation every time we find rest in Jesus. And when we read, you shall have no other gods before me, we worship the one true God through Jesus. And when we read, you shall not make images, we marvel at the fact that we don't need to make images of God to help us glimpse what he is like. Because God has sent us his own perfect image, Jesus Christ, who is everything that the first image, Adam, should have been and failed. God's first image bearer was a mess. And so are we. But Jesus, he imaged God perfectly. Don't make images. We have Jesus. Worship him and believe that by the Spirit, we are being transformed into his image day by day. And when we read, you shall not commit adultery, we see with Jesus that the same God who forbid adultery forbid covetous desires. And we realize that lust is actually the deeper problem. The heart problem. And so then we celebrate that Jesus has the power to defeat lust in our hearts by the Spirit. He alone can satisfy out-of-control desire with the contentment and rest and joy that he alone can give. And finally, when we read through all the case laws and all the hundreds of judgments that sound so foreign to us, we're to look in them for the principles of love of God and neighbor that Jesus perfectly pictures for us through his life and teaching. It does not bind us, but ultimately it instructs us. It instructs those who are bound to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your law. I thank you that it's written on our hearts if we trust Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and you would plant it in us, that you would conform us into the image of your son, whom we love. And I ask, Father, that you would bring the Sabbath rest that creation is groaning for. The rest that Joshua, the writer of Hebrews says, Joshua didn't give them rest. They were hoping to get to the promised land. That's our rest. And it didn't happen. Jesus brought rest. I just thank you for that. I thank you that Jesus, we can rest in you from all our efforts to try to earn God's acceptance, we can rest that you have won for us access to the throne of grace. I pray that you would help our hearts to be stirred with love for you now as we go to the table. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.